Welcome to Optimizing, the podcast about leading Africa's digital future. I'm Professor Barry Dwolatsky. And I'm Karen Gammy. Season two has the theme, Receiving and Passing the Baton. We're in conversation with people who have shaped or will shape Africa's digital future. Each conversation draws on the metaphor of life as a relay race. Our guests will talk about how they received the baton, who and what influenced them as they started life's journey. We will then discuss their own journey, how they nurtured and grew the baton in their hands. Finally, we will ask them about what it is that they will pass on to the next generation of leaders and experts. Today, we are joined by Peter de Villiers. Hi, Peter. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, Prof. Barry. Thank you for the opportunity. It's great to have you here. And my co-host, Karen Gammy. Hi, Karen. Hey, Prof. Hey, Peter. Uh, hi, everyone. So nice to be here again. So we are speaking to Peter de Villiers, who started his professional life, believe it or not, as an optometrist in Cape Town. But that uh, didn't last long because he is clearly a tech innovator and, and entrepreneur at heart. And many young techies dream of coming up with that invention that will make it in the super competitive world of digital technology. And unfortunately, most people who dr have that dream aren't brave enough to try, and many of those who do try to take an idea to market, don't succeed for a whole variety of reasons. But Peter is one of the few South African tech entrepreneurs who was brave enough to try and succeeded. 20 years ago, with his brother and two friends, he came up with a tech innovation that was a world first that literally went on to change the world of of uh, digital technology. Uh, they launched a company called Clickatel, which now has offices around the world, including in Silicon Valley, although most of its uh, developers still sit in Cape Town. Apart from being a successful South African tech entrepreneur, Peter's worked really hard to encourage and develop local innovation and entrepreneurship. He's also working on an exciting initiative to grow digital skills in South Africa. So, Peter, this podcast is based on the metaphor of a relay race, focusing on receiving and passing the conceptual baton. Prior to talking about this baton that you'll hand over at some time to my co-host Karen and her, and her generation of future leaders, entrepreneurs and experts. Can we speak about the batons that you received? I read in an article that I guess as a teenager in the 1980s, you managed to get your hands on an early Apple Mac computer. This, this must have been an exciting piece of technology to have access to in those very early days of personal computing. But uh, what were the key inspirations for you as you grew up? And who were some of your heroes and role models? Yeah, I'm happy to share some of my experiences along our journey. Um, I'm often reminded it's the journey, not the destination that matters. Yep. But my mom once uh, told me that it's the people on the journey that matters most. So it's a very poignant question around the people that inspired me and, and us as founders. Um, I think it's, it's useful just to state up front, being a South African, that we grew up in privilege. And without having access to computers and a strong education, many of our dreams perhaps would not have been realized. And, and, and I guess that will take us to a different discussion later in, so in terms of what's the potential. Um, one of my other inspirations, of course, has been my dad. Um, he's an entrepreneur, and um, I distinctly remember sitting uh, underneath his desk in his office 
and listening to how he was on the phone doing business deals. And I guess mm. there's something in the energy of an entrepreneur hustling to try and make things work um, that stuck with me as a young uh, child. Um, I also get inspiration from reading and um, we were avid readers uh, of Fortune magazine and Time magazine and, and in many ways um, I was in a job in optometry that I knew was not the right fit for me. You know, study, studying optometry is fascinating because you have the, the convergence of, of physics and mathematics with biology. Um, but once you get into practice, you really are a retailer. Mm. And that um, disillusionment um, uh, set in very quickly. And I started, you know, getting excited about the internet and reading about uh, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and how they were changing the world with this thing called, you know, the internet and computing world. And so that certainly inspired us um, to think of ideas of how we can be uh, participating in this, you know, new exciting world. I think other role models just briefly, you know, uh, during this time in particular was, of course, Nelson Mandela. He's actually one of our values cult um, characters uh, in our business um, where we try and live up to some of their ideologies and, and uh, uh, goals and, and ethos that he had as being a champion in the company. And then, of course, we were lucky in our journey to have people like Jeff Heinebach. He was an ex-Siemens executive who um, really famously said to us in one of our off-sites when we were still you know, a small startup, uh, you should think bigger um, and you should burn your bridges um, and, and, and really go for it. And so if, if it wasn't for that little bit of a push, we probably would have been um, you know, a, a small South African company and, mm -hmm. and not spread our wings to the world. No, just I think quickly other names, Mark Shuttleworth, of course, yes. you know, Rula Puerta, a guy called Donovan Neil May, so many entrepreneurs also uh, in yeah. that answer. It's, it's clearly that in your blood, in your DNA, was this entrepreneurial spirit and willingness to take risks and, and go further. The launch of Clickertel was based on an invention that 20 years later, I must admit, seems so obvious and so necessary that one can't imagine the world without it. And yet it was a world first when you and your co-founders created it. This is the mark of really important innovations. Uh, could you tell us what this invention was for those of our listeners who uh, don't know? Yeah, yeah, we've told this story a few times and, you know, um, I hope I don't bore anyone, but essentially 19 years and 10 months ago, we published four lines of code that you could cut and paste into any website and it would enable that website to send a mobile text message. Now, we were by no means geniuses. We stumbled across this problem because, you know, if you read Fortune and Time magazine at the time, which was late 99, with the whole crescendo of the dot-com and internet bubble, then most of the um, websites and business models were around e-commerce. And back in the day, travel were one of the most successful e-commerce categories on the internet. And we were going to do something quite simple. Today we know this as lastminute.com or other similar offerings, but we were going to send um, these very attractive travel deals to all of our friends that were expats in London and elsewhere in Europe um, for their weekend away sort of hops and trips. And so we realized very soon that by sending a notification of a half-price airplane ticket, um, that deal will only live about 24 hours or 48 hours before it will expire because we would essentially be selling leftover inventory of a flight. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, when we tried to see if this would work, we realized that most people would not respond to that offer because they only read their email every second or third day. Now, mm -hmm. I guess I will sell many fortunes if I only have to read my email every third day today. But certainly back then, it was the reality. And so 
We searched high and low on AltaVista and Excite. These were search engines before Google to try and find a way to get that uh, information to a consumer in record time, in, in real time, basically, uh, through mobile text messaging and realized that it did not exist. So essentially, we created Clickatel, Click for Web. It was connecting the world's fastest growing commerce platform in the world with the world's fastest growing communication platform in the world, the telephone. So Click for Web, Tel for Telecommunication or Telephone, Clickatel, hence the name. And we, we built um, that capability, literally um, not knowing what's around the corner. And certainly, I'm glad I'm not in trouble today. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, I mean, this is so wild because like now it just feels like, you know, APIs are just the bread and butter of so much of like the technological like infrastructure. And to think that like a mere, what, 20 odd years ago, this just wasn't even a thing is just blowing my mind. Um, also, now there's like a, a common joke in like the AI community where it's like, you don't actually need to know how to build like some super sexy AI algorithm. You just need to know how like APIs work. But okay, cool. So you have this innovation. Uh, you figure, okay, damn, like there's nothing out there like this in the world as it stands. So how did you actually end up taking this thing to market? And then how did you then go about creating a startup 20 years ago? Yeah, thanks, Karen. It, I think it helps not to know how hard it was going to be. Because um, <laughs> mm. I think that if we knew, there's many other jobs we could have taken and would have paid well. Sure. Um, but essentially, we were already on track to do something entrepreneurial. And, uh, you know, first and foremost, I think it's important for entrepreneurs to make sure they can convince other people uh, to jump in the fire with them. So friends yep. and family is a good place to start. And certainly we were four founders, not one. And I try and remind people about that because, again, no journey is worth it if you're taking it alone. Um, mm. But, you know, it's funny, you know, we actually drove to a bookstore. There's a great bookstore in downtown Cape Town. And we, we bought some books on how to hold your first board meeting, how to set up a shareholders agreement. It's insane how little information and guidance and mentorship there were at the time. And maybe, Prof, we can talk about that and how some of the things you guys are doing is helping, you know, circumvent or, or augment that. But we knew nothing other than being uh, quite um, uh, bullish about doing something for ourselves and in this new world. And so you talk about go-to-market. I firmly believe go-to-market is the single biggest challenge for any technology entrepreneur. Um, right. Sometimes we, we wake up and think, okay, I've got this great idea. Well, great ideas are table stakes, you know, solving a problem are things that, that are really ground zero and, and, and you don't even deserve to have a you know, business plan uh, being submitted if you're not doing that. So I, I try and remind entrepreneurs that, that that having a great idea is not the aha. Um, mm -hmm. Even having product market fit is something that's not going to get you to cross the chasm. Product market fit can be, you know, people say fake it till you make it. It's easy to get product market fit early sort of um, wins, I guess, and, and metrics because people will try things and are curious. But really is go to market, which is the, the key piece that I'm missing. Now, our go-to-market, Karen, um, was something that, that nearly um, also shut us down in the sense of ability to afford it. So we, we put four lines of code out in the open wild internet and said anyone could use it. And people started using it. websites. In fact, we had more than 60,000 websites who copied and pasted and embedded those four lines of code into their home pages. But it meant also that hundreds of thousands of, of mobile text messages were sent on our dime. And we realized that, that at some point we will not be able to pay the, the bills because we had no revenue model. And yeah. we distinctly used that free offering to get traction, but then we quickly had to shut it down into a paid for model, lost about 86% of our clients or more, but we then had a paid for viable model going forward. Mm. 
in terms of protecting it, so you say four lines of code, but um, how did you protect the IP? Um, how did you stop it just being used for free? Yeah, so first of all, Prof, um, when we talk about IP protection, just in terms of patents and all of that, um, we were, and I think that's why I think incubation and mentorship is so important. We, we almost didn't know better. We were first time tech entrepreneurs. And by the time we found out about intellectual property protection, first of all, we didn't have the money, so we probably would not have done it in any case. But I do think that there was a big sort of lapse in, 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 uh, in foresight, um, per se. But in terms of moving from a free model to a paid for model, inside of those four lines of code, you still had to create a username and password that would give you credential access to the platform. And so we basically um, uh, gave people a warning that in 30 days, their uh, credentials will expire uh, and that they will have to um, get paid payment done on the website and the platform uh, for those credentials to be renewed. And Karen, you mentioned this perhaps, you, know, you talk about APIs. Mm. Back then, APIs were a new thing SaaS yeah. was a new thing, you know, <laughs> e-commerce was a new thing. And oh, so the dark days. <laughs> yeah, so we did a lot of things that we didn't even realize what we were actually embarking on. Sure, yeah, yeah. So you've launched the company and Clickertel's going. In terms of um, continuing to innovate, I assume that uh, Clickertel didn't stop there and uh, your entrepreneurship journey wasn't completely based on that one innovation. Um, can you speak a bit more about your your sort of trajectory in terms of continuing to innovate? Absolutely, Prof. I think that, um, first of all, no technology company, I think, survives two decades of disruption if they don't continue to innovate. And I think that's, that's sure. something that's been in our DNA, luckily. You know, if you, if you don't have a culture of innovation, then I, I think it, it really is going to be tough, difficult to sort of navigate. But, you know, if you think carefully about Clickertel, when I explained how we got started, you know, connecting the, the communications universe with the commerce universe, the ability to transact universe, um, what that means in today's terms is what we term chat commerce. The ability to do amazing things for consumers um, from servicing uh, their account to paying for things all inside of the world's most popular uh, chat platforms. In fact, the way we term this is helping brands and consumers connect, interact and transact uh, where they are. And so we were the first company um, in the world to launch chat banking on, for example, the WhatsApp channel. Um, mm. And that was with APSA. Yep. <laughs> uh, we, were, we were also the first company in the world to launch credit card transactions inside the WhatsApp channel, and that was with MTN, and that's a full-on chat commerce uh, capability where people can recharge their phone, buy data in minutes um, in, a, in almost a single-click transaction experience. So the innovation continues. This week we launched a new platform uh, called ChatDesk, um, to make the handoff seamless between a, a human agent and a, and a bot agent. But yes, innovation is deep in our veins uh, and we will continue to do that because the market opportunity is large enough to support it. Yeah, right. and that's, uh, that's such an important lesson. Yeah. I think maybe just one point I'll add is that we firmly believe that the next billion consumers um, are not going to be onboarded through websites and apps. Um, they are going to transact and interact on these chat platforms. Mm. We've seen it with in, in Asia with WeChat and Alipay, and we believe it's only a matter of time before we'll see it in the rest of the world, including the US, um, and are super excited about the potential uh, in the market. Yeah. So... Um... And then you, you've, you personally have spent quite a lot of time in Silicon Valley. Uh, what is that ecosystem like? And uh, did you meet any uh, South African entrepreneurs in uh, Silicon Valley? 
Yes, we lived uh, for more than 10 years um, in the Bay Area, as we call it, uh, or the locals would call it. And all our kids were born there. So I have uh, three kids and, and they all um, went to school there. And, and, and I think that Silicon Valley um, gets a pretty bad rap these days, which is unfortunate because there's amazing people there. Um, there is real challenges in the Bay Area around gender sort of uh, diversity and, and some of the behavior of some founders, but I think it's, it's largely um, uh, you know, folks that, that, that are flying pretty high and, and unfortunately do this, the, the Bay Area harm in terms of their behavior and, 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 and how much they're giving back. So not to defend the Bay Area per se, but we certainly would not be where we are had it not been for the overwhelming willingness to assist and be helpful in the Bay Area. You know, you've, you've essentially um, have people uh, who's open to taking a coffee, open to taking a, a meeting um, when needed. Um, and for one of the you know, venture capital firms called Moore Davidow called me a stranger in a strange land and for a stranger to be able to get you know, a coffee with a successful entrepreneur and learn from them um, was a big deal. And I, I really hope that in South Africa, we also get a scenario where entrepreneurs are willing to spend time with other entrepreneurs, especially successful mm-hmm. ones, uh, but within reason, of course. You know, people's time are precious. Uh, but that really was um, a, a, a very important catalyst for us to figure out how do we grow and, and scale our business. Right. In terms of other South Africans, um, there are far less South Africans in the Bay Area, um, San Francisco, than there are elsewhere in the U.S. Um, I guess it's two hops to get there in terms of a flight, so you have less mm-hmm. of them. Uh, but there's obviously very accomplished South Africans uh, there, and um, ranging you know, from technology entrepreneurs all the way to venture capitalists now these days. And so um, there was a guy there called Donovan Neil May, got a big marketing business there. Mm-hmm. He was very helpful. Obviously, Rudolf Puerta was very helpful um, from Sequoia, who's an investor in us, um, and then other entrepreneurs who we met along the way. Right. That's super interesting. And I totally agree. You know, uh, Silicon Valley is, is spicy for often all the wrong reasons. Um, but there's obviously like some good work that goes on. And like, you know, they've definitely pioneered a lot of the tech culture that exists today. And I was wondering in your experience, what the uh, the kind of tech slash entrepreneurial culture has been like in Cape Town and in Joburg. Uh, and if you think there's anything like incredibly distinct um, in, in either of those places. Yeah, so I think, I think first of all, um, technology entrepreneurship really should be boundaryless. There's no reason why it has to be uh, confined by metropole um, mm. corridors. Uh, we see, uh, you know, a Silicon Derbs organization now starting and, and trying to get things up in, in Natal area. Um, yeah. But we do see that you need some critical mass in terms of like-minded individuals, in terms of access to co-working spaces where you can bring the cost down, although with COVID, I guess, co-working space is now a, a home-working mm. space. Mm. Um, but essentially, Silicon Cape, um, an initiative around that was important to try and not just put a label on something, but to, to galvanize uh, a community. You know, they say mm-hmm. it takes a village to raise a child. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it takes more than a village to raise a startup. Um, sure, and, and having some form of 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 community and and access to 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 advice, assistance, funding uh, is super important um, because you need that cultivated um, fertile ground. Yeah. Startups are as fragile as any small, you know, new plant would be, and and that's mm-hmm. um, important. We see, by the way, just to answer your question, um, Karen. Western Cape being a little bit ahead in terms of of how long it's been on that journey, but right. Johannesburg and, and Pretoria catching up quite quickly with really amazing entrepreneurs uh, and initiatives um, uh, in those areas, including the work that uh, Properi and the team are doing. Yeah, um, shout out. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
to to uh, just sort of go back a second to what you said about Silicon Valley, and we uh, did some research last year on the tech entrepreneurship scene in Joburg and Pretoria, and one of the um, the things that came out, one of the weaknesses, was that successful entrepreneurs weren't giving back to the entrepreneurship community, which is. Yeah. Such a big thing that you've said is the case in Silicon Valley. So, uh, you know, I think the best person to inv- advise an entrepreneur is another, is a successful entrepreneur. Mm. And, and, and we, it, it wasn't coming out as a strong thing happening in our ecosystem. I think it's stronger in Cape Town. And uh, we'll talk more in a minute about what you've been doing to promote that. But could I just go back to to ask about incubators? So um, in many circles, incubators get a bit of a bad rap. And uh, you you kind of know that I've set up the Simolochong precinct in Bramfontein and not thinking about uh, social distancing at this point. But um, people have said that or there's there are two camps, people that say incubators are important and uh, those who say that they are, are kind of not that valuable. So can you just talk a bit about what you think about incubators as places to support and grow tech innovation and entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think that, you know, as I mentioned, you know, startups are fragile and they need they need some some fertile ground to help mitigate some of that fragility um, and incubators I think the, I think the challenge we have around the opinion for incubators is because we haven't defined what an incubator is necessarily um, for the masses and accurately enough I mean there are there are organizations that call themselves incubators but they really just offer space for rent that's not an incubator and I think we need to we need to um, almost get an incubation certification or grading system going to solve for this because not all so-called incubators are created equal. Um, people um, in the property have sometimes labeled themselves as an incubator to to do co-working spaces and that's it. And so I think that's important to, to distinguish between an actual incubator versus doing those pretending to be one. An actual incubator is very powerful. And very important for it provides um, in an environment like South Africa. It looks like the popular word these days is the word desert, right? We have a startup desert in South Africa uh, to some extent. So you need these incubators and these hubs to create safe places for entrepreneurs to mingle and co-mingle, coexist and learn from each other and perhaps even support each other. And so uh, Timolong, and, and the incubation work that, that uh, is, is happening in Bramfontein, I think is, is very important. Unfortunately, I think incubators are perpetually underfunded and perpetually, uh, or as a res- result, in under-resourced. Mm. Um, and it takes time for an executive and a bank uh, to, to, to make the mind shift that, hey, I can actually do my, you know, uh, give back at this incubator on a Monday for an hour slot every second month. And that's yeah. my, and, and, and so I think once we get there, and I'm delighted, Karen, that you're, you know, giving some of your time in this, in, in this effort even, as a, a person working in a large bank, uh, it's fantastic because it's, it is about giving back and helping the incubators even thrive and have enough support for the entrepreneurs. Yeah. So, so firstly, I just want to say that your, the metaphors that you're using about like plants and deserts are making me super cognizant of all the plants that I have been like neglecting over the last few days. And now I'm just like, oh my gosh, I need to water them like now because <laughs> they are dying. Um, but so, so thank you for like all the things that you're saying about just sort of, like incubation and, and kind of like the tenuous relationship that exists between, you know, entrepreneurship and then support and fragility. Um, but I guess like in terms of like pragmatic skill sets, like what do you think um, the skill sets look like uh, in terms of support for entrepreneurship? You know, there's so many things that um, entrepreneurs go through in, in different phases of the company, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, myself, for example, when we were four founders in a living room, 
what we have to have in place was very different to being a 30-man company to being a 300-plus-man company. And our own learning journey um, really had changed significantly along the way. So I, I do think that there, there are some basic things around um, infrastructure support and being able to do it in economics of, economies of scale that makes sense, but access to learning, access to mentors. I remember so many times trying to figure out who's going to facilitate, for example, an executive offsite. Well, there's no reason why an incubator should not have a professional exec offsite facilitator that at a fraction of the cost than somebody costing $3,000 or $5,000 you know, a day. And, and so there's so many things that I think that we can actually anticipate in the journey of an entrepreneur, financial assistance or a CFO that can be used on a share basis because would you rather hire a CFO or a developer? Uh, software engineer. And so I think that, that if we care about incubation, then we must first of all speak to the client that is aimed at, right? So speak to the entrepreneurs, see what their needs are, see if there are economies of scale, see if there are friends and family and, and give back, you know, socially aware experts in the market to then come in and help augment. So I, th I do think incubation model there are some that work really well. There's many ideas and models out in the, in, in the world, but we need to, you know, I think, go back to basics and say, this is what incubation means. We're going to give a star rating of from one to five based on these certain services being being on offer. Um, and then, then I think ultimately entrepreneurs need to realize that this doesn't come for free, that they can't get everything on a platter, that they have to also contribute in some way, shape, or form. If they can't afford it, then they must give their time mm -hmm. or give, give their technology or something to make it uh, more viable. Um, and um, a couple of years ago, you decided to pull together to, to give back in a big way. And you started pulling together people and resources, including me, um, to uh, support innovation and entrepreneurship in South Africa. And you um, set up an organization called Simodisa, and it um, it grew and it um, had a lot of activities. Could you talk about what motivated you to do this, to pull this all together? And what successes and challenges uh, did you encounter in the um, Simodisa journey? Yeah, Prof. Um, you know, Simodisa, the meaning of Simodisa is to lead or to shepherd. Um, and it really was uh, an attempt by us to try and make it a little bit easier for entrepreneurs in South Africa and Africa in, in the long term to, to get off the ground and to be able to have a better chance of succeeding. You know, um, there's so many things Silicon Valley has taught me in terms of having, you know, a conducive environment uh, you know, understanding where funding happens, right? You know, Sandhill Road is where most of the VCs were at the time. They've now moved offices into the city and elsewhere, but essentially you knew where the funders were. You kind of knew where the law firms were and they were all knowledgeable around term sheets and what a convertible note was. And, and you know, then you knew what what investors and bankers would, would, would value. And if you want to get a loan, intellectual property was important and the assignment of intellectual property and so all of these things that, that we went through with a less than 5% you know, probability of being successful had to navigate those things and were lucky enough because of a confluence of all kinds of things to survive, we just thought, wow, the odds are really stacked up against these African and South African entrepreneurs and startups. Can we do something to, to make the impact um, or the risk, to mitigate the risk in some way, shape or form? So in short, Simedisa has two main streams. One is about entrepreneurship uh, advocacy. Um, and uh, that's really to, to look at intellectual property laws in South Africa that are clumsy and not relevant for a modern society and kind of laws that we grandfathered in from an old apartheid regime that was trying to protect intellectual property in an unnatural way. So we need to fix that. And that's a very logical thing, although you know, it 
takes time to move the machinery of, of the public sector to, to really understand that. Things like funding um, and access to funding, making it uh, plausible for, for, for risky investments to receive funding with things like the 12J uh, legislation amendments that we propose. So there's really real work around advocacy and policy changes to help the public sector and government understand the value entrepreneurs bring to the economy and how, how they can help. The second leg, just on, on closing that out, is this idea of amplification. You know, um, we don't celebrate, you made, made the point earlier, we don't really celebrate entrepreneurs, not that we should put them on a pedestal at all, but we should have it as a viable option and career um, and not be something that people frown upon and say, oh, you're, you're a dropout, you can't get a real job at a big brand or business. That, that entrepreneurs um, is a viable thing. And, and sometimes young people in South Africa are too you know, scared for the conversation to show their family about, hey, I decided not to go you know, into this corporate track, but rather start a business. And make sure people understand that, that entrepreneurship is also something worthy of doing and, 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 and share those stories. Yeah. Um, so you spoke a little bit about sort of, you know, IP and, and kind of like the law that exists in tech and, and how these things are slow moving and whatnot. And I'm curious to understand, uh, you know, as more and more conversations around like data privacy and how data is used and, and how potentially like exploitative uh, tech can be for, for an end user. I'm curious to understand a little bit about like what has your engagement with the law and tech been over these last like 20 years like have you experienced a much more kind of like keenness and curiosity from legal practitioners to be like hey cool we know tech is this big thing that's happening and we kind of want to get ahead of the curve like how do we collaborate and understand each other better to make you know uh tech a, a, a cooler and, and more safe thing to work with yeah i think it's important karen to to to, to acknowledge that in Africa and Southern Africa, um, entrepreneurs are lucky in that they don't have to uh, double down on ad-supported business models. There's right. enough problems in society, real problems, <laughs> that needs yeah. real solutions and real tech. Uh, yeah. Even in our business, we are fortunate that we don't have to uh, utilize consumer data to be able to make the numbers right. work. Um, unfortunately, though, a lot of Silicon Valley, if you think of, of the large brands, a lot of Silicon Valley is dependent and survives on, on, on mining consumer data and mm. therefore so then exploiting it. But to answer your question, um, law firms um, around the country, in, in particular in South Africa, have a real responsibility to also help us do the right thing. And we've worked very successfully with amazing law firms uh, to help us think about policy and legislation to be more helpful and enabling for South Africa. Um, okay. But I also think I have some concerns that even our audit firms and law firms in South Africa have a lot to answer for in the last 10 years in terms of what's happened in our country mm -hmm. and how we've defended some of the culprits that's been um, mortgaging the future for our youth. Now, I don't want to go into a political discussion on this uh, uh, podcast, but I think law firms can do both really valuable work uh, mm. in enabling the future for Africa and South Africa, but they can also do a lot of damage by not sure. uh, holding the, the moral compass uh, mm. as well. Yeah, and it's been uh, something I've sort of long believed is that the kind of audit culture, so not even the, the legal practices, but the accounting practices. And, uh, you know, there are two ways accountants work. They can either block innovation or find creative ways to support innovation. So I think our professional practices have to also come to the party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Peter, uh, the um, question of skills is such an important one, and I know that we both agree and have identified the need for digital skills in South Africa, and Africa is such a huge challenge going forward. If we can't find the skills, then 
to uh, find the people to work in the many startups we hope to launch is going to be a big problem. And our mainstream economy also lacks certain skills. Um, um, I know you've given it a lot of thought, and could you speak a bit about how you feel the skills gap could be filled? Yeah, Prof, I think there's a massive disconnect between our public officials um, and what's happening on the ground in terms of, you know, we, we, we put job creation as the number one issue in South Africa. But I would make a case that the number one issue for South Africa is actually education and skills. Mm. Um, we had pre-COVID now, so I acknowledge it's pre-COVID, but we had almost 200,000 200, job openings last year this time that could not be filled, which means, uh, sorry, 200,000. So um, that will make a real dent in the income uh, and tax revenues for the country, but we mm. can't find those skills. In fact, the technology skills gap is not unique to South Africa or Africa. It's a global gap. Um, and there are millions of digital skills jobs globally available. Um, and that's a very big missed opportunity. And so we've done a lot of work um, trying to understand, first and foremost, how does a digital skill um, get created? You know, we surveyed several technology companies in South Africa to try and understand how somebody actually got into that skill, especially um, young people that are less privileged and typically um, came from disadvantaged communities. And the reality is that there's actually some amazing work being done already at school level and even more so thrusted now with COVID-19 um, in terms of digital learning. We can obviously do more, but there's amazing uh, coding academies and, and coding clubs and, and um, robotics initiatives run by dedicated nonprofits um, and quite frankly, people who care. The challenge we have is that um, a lot of these initiatives are perpetually underfunded, are on the fringes, and not really being um, supported in a meaningful way by public policy to help scale uh, it to, to real size. And if I think about my own journey, as I mentioned, you know, having a computer at young age, even if you're just um, getting into gaming and building a confidence and a love for computing through gaming can also be a way for you to get into this place where computers and software and the internet doesn't scare you, but really, you know, mm. empowers you. But fast forward, we've realized that there's, a ma there's really good after-school programs uh, run by many organizations across the country, thanks to a big sort of program called the YES program. Mm -hmm. But only 20% of the youth of, through those programs really get placement um, long term. And so we have this um, concept that we're hoping we can get in front of the uh, decision makers in government and also, quite frankly, in front of CEOs around an apprenticeship center where we take, uh, we, where we create 100 of these apprenticeship on the job training centers but are almost um, repurposing TVET colleges and other infrastructure, build these centers closer to where the youth live and their communities are, so we don't have to always uproot people, um, but allow them to take their learning on coding or QA or machine learning or even just digital marketing skills and have a safe, continued learning environment where they can hone those skills and actually produce work you know, for the government's digitization program, for companies like Clickital to outsource work to them versus India. Because we know that if you have about two years experience in a place of work, then technology companies will come and hire you out of those environments. But if you just came out of a 
coding um, course for the first time and you've never worked in a company, it's very difficult for mid-sized technology companies to hire you because we simply don't have the resources internally to coach and mentor you. Yeah, it's um, such a great model. Um, the uh, one challenge in that is is the uh, mentorship or the the kind of the flips or the um, the kind of co side of of an apprenticeship is to have an expert that the apprentice works with. And um, in terms of that model, where would the mentors, where would the 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 tech, the experienced people come from? Yeah, that's a great that's a great comment. Um, we believe that since most uh, corporations in South Africa and technology companies in South Africa uh, have realized that their own inflation around skills and ability to get the job done rides on the availability of the skills that we will actually be able to harness and mobilize some of the people in the technology and large companies with those skills. For example, you know, there's a QA lead in our company that's going to spend a bit more time with an on-the-ground supervisor to give them a bit more visibility on how things need to get done and what they would expect. But at the same time, I think what we'll, what we'll do as a first um, uh, pass is train the training, right? So yeah. again, use our TVET colleges. We are so stuck on three or four year tertiary degrees. And while there's a big uh, market and, and requirement for that, there's a whole slew of people that can be trained in certification models, uh, again, through the training colleges that we do have in these other me methodologies and modalities. And so we don't have enough time on, on, on this conversation to go into the detail, but the idea would be to, to, to train the trainer, leverage some of the goodwill that companies are willing to, to reinvest into these models um, in exchange for a discounted rate card for this work to be done in terms of maybe some, some economic empowerment scorecard points and really have a soft um, a fulfilling uh, flywheel of benefits for all. Yeah, and um, I think it's a fantastic model. And as I've said to you before, you know you've got my support in doing this, and I'm really looking forward to see what comes out of it. So um, coming back to our relay race metaphor, it's clear that through um, Simodisa, through the skills program, you've spent a lot of your time hand passing on the baton in this metaphorical relay race. But um, suppose you were now sitting with some young South Africans like Karen who were embarking on a future in the digital economy. Uh, what advice would you give them? Yeah, you know, I think that's, um, first of all, I think advice um, really uh, is something that, that's only contextual and relevant to, 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 to the right audience. And so yeah, true. I know, by no means do I feel you know, my advice would be groundbreaking, other than saying that um, it's important, I think, for entrepreneurs to be authentic uh, in the way they go about things. If all you're doing is copying someone's idea or looking over someone's shoulder, or you worked at a company and they're working on something, you like the idea, you break out and you start a business doing that, I'm not sure if, you, if you're really from a from a authentic level um, are going to be able to navigate all the challenges that's coming your way. The foundation has to be strong of why you're doing what you're doing, what problem are you solving, and do you really have the grit and the and, 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 and the grind in you to see it through? And so and if, if it's opportunistic um, that the way you go about this, I think so too will your stamina be limited mm -hmm. and so be authentic um, not everybody is supposed to be an entrepreneur um, and so I think you know sometimes we try and nurture entrepreneurship uh, but also in people that, that may just not be entrepreneurs and now what is the DNA of an entrepreneur I think you know everybody's trying to figure that out every survey every blog post every you know uh, conference is trying to define what that means 
Um, but ultimately, it's about conviction. It's about taking risk uh, and uh, and having enough, uh, I guess, uh, ability to convince others to to do something like that with you. But more importantly, the advice I would give entrepreneurs is that you know, we I, I was fortunate enough to meet uh, Bill Gates um, in person and had a, a short conversation with him one on one. And he, he said something that I would never forget. He said that you're never too old or too, too non-successful to be able to give back. So you, you don't have to wait until you've had your massive exit and your you know, multi-million dollar paycheck day to be able to give back. You can give back early in your life. Um, and you never know what impact that will have on the people around you. And I think that's for entrepreneurs being so consumed by just you know surviving, you'll never you'll never appreciate the the the, the ripple effect it can have if also in your day to day grind you can actually then give back um, in that journey. And and that's why I like Endeavor and, and what they're doing. Most of the Endeavor entrepreneurs are like minded in the sense of giving back to other entrepreneurs and paying it forward. Yeah, that's such good advice. And I think yeah. to um, to sort of go back to something you said right at the beginning, and uh, I think you called it burn your bridges, but I think that an entrepreneur has to be brave. Mm -hmm. And you've certainly been brave in your journey, and it's paid off. But I think that would be a real good lesson for people to take from your story. So, uh, Peter, thank you so much for this discussion. I think it's been really interesting. Yeah. And um, I wish you luck, Clickatel, and your colleagues and your founders and everyone who works for you. Huge luck, but also huge luck in your skills program and everything else you do. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Prof. And have a wonderful day. This podcast is a Grand Geeks production. It is produced by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and edited by Evan McDorowitz. It is presented by Professor Barry Dwalatsky and Karen Gammy. Music is done by Callum Cool and logo designed by Evan McDorowitz. The companion website is at www.softwareengineer.org.za.